Lord God, we ask that by uh, your word this evening, you would purify our hearts to let us be as gold, pure gold before you. Amen. Uh, Well, a few minutes ago, we um, had our creed. We declared our faith in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Why is it? Has it ever occurred to you to ask why is it that we uh, speak of the Holy Spirit? We don't speak of the Holy Father or a Holy Son. The reason is that there is only one Father, only one Son, but lots of spirits. And most of them are unholy. So we need to distinguish. This week has seen, as many of you will know, the uh, anniversary of the death of JFK in Dallas. And on that same day, C.S. Lewis died. The BBC has been serialising, once again, uh, his screw tape letters, the letters from a senior to a junior devil. And he goes into the uh, beginning of that book recognizing that uh, one of the uh, devil's best plans uh, in the face of the church of God is to get some of us not to believe in anything devilish at all, and others of us to be so obsessed by uh, demons under every uh, bed that we can never uh, have any peace whatsoever. And rightly, C.S. Lewis directs us to recognize the power of devilish and demonic activity uh, without becoming paranoid or wrongly fearful. And as we've done a few times, what I want to do is to uh, find the location of this passage that we've got tonight. And I'm afraid, again, it's one of those terrible things, a famous bit. Famous bits are always problematic. Uh, because famous bits inevitably get taken out of context. And what I want to do is to stitch it back into its context so we can see where it belongs. Because if I don't do that, I will only end up preaching the sermon that lots of you have heard umpteen times before, and most of you, we could swap places, and you could all come up here and preach to me about what the belt of righteousness is and how the sword involved of the Spirit is a short sword and all the things that normally go along with the clichés around this passage. So, don't please open at the passage. Instead, please open at the beginning of the letter. Uh, Page 1173. And what I want to do is, for a moment, and it is only for a moment, to treat Ephesians as a kind of battle plan. Uh, First, in verses 1 Uh, through to 10 of chapter 1, we get the declaration, the announcement of the outcome of all that is going to happen. He made known to us the mystery of his will. This is uh, verse 9. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's what the end game is going to look like. Secondly, in chapters 2 and 3, over the page, we get the forging of the coalition armies. 
The Jews on one side, the Gentiles on the other, are forged together. Uh, Verse uh, 15 of chapter 2, his purpose was to create in himself, in Jesus, one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. They were at hostility with each other. Now they've been, that hostility has been cancelled. Uh, they've been, uh, by the cross of Christ, they've been brought together as a single coalition army. Then, uh, uh, that was the beginning of chapter 3 as well as chapter 2, um, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3, and I'm more and more convinced this is the hinge of the, the, the book, uh, that we are told of the scale of the army, and the scale of the army is then made known to the, rel- the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, verse 10, according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are rulers, authorities, spiritual powers in the heavenly places that are opposed to God, and the church's job is to make known uh, to those powers what God has done in Christ. Then, uh, chapters 4 and 5, and the first part of chapter 6, those are all about the challenges of living together as one army. Uh, When it's difficult to have any kind of shape of unity and togetherness, The challenges are recognized and resolved. And then, in chapter 6, in our passage tonight, we are reminded how to conduct the battle. All of which is to say that uh, chapter 6 and verses 10 through to 18, certainly, possibly to 20, they're not a random theme. This is where you go in the Bible to talk about spiritual warfare, as it probably says at the front of your Gideon Bibles. Not a bad thing to do. Very good place to go indeed. But the context is that this is at the heart of what we are supposed to be about as the church of God, the coalition army of God. We exist to make known to the principalities and powers and authorities and rulers what God has been doing all along following his plan in all its wisdom. That is our job. And we make it known just by being the church, with all the unique quality of life that's ours, responding to the plan. So just as you can go back through Ephesians and find the plan, you can see what it is that our response is. So back again. We uh, rejoice uh, most of chapter 1 in the power of God made known to us. Over the page, chapter 2, the first stretch through to verse 10. Over what was death, we now have life. Our joy was in discovering that we were chosen from all eternity, that was in chapter 1, and we find our hope and our power. In chapter 3, in that famous bit, verses 14 to 21, we discover the power of Christ's love in us. We go on to chapter 4 and discover a a passion for unity, but also a delight in diversity. From verse 4 and... uh, from verse... uh, uh, sorry, chapter 4 and verse 17, 
all the way through to the end of the slaves and masters in uh, chapter 6, verse 9, we get this longing to be holy. And then, yes, the end of, well, not the, quite the end, but verse 20 of chapter 6, our clear speaking. Pray that I may declare it, that's the gospel, fearlessly, as I should. We're going to do that mostly next week. So when we come to the passage tonight, what we find is that it fits in. There's a great big clue there in verse uh, 19, which is just beyond where we uh, stopped. Pray that I may open my mouth. Now, Paul isn't randomly introducing the topic of opening his mouth. Rather, it's all been about that. The opposition that we face in verses 10 to 18 from spiritual powers is not in any way random. Rather, it is the spiritual powers of the universe fighting back as the church of God gets on with what it should be getting on with according to chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. We're there to make known the manifold wisdom of God while the powers push back in the speech of the church and in our life. We witness to the work of Christ, the work of God in Christ, and it is that that's opposed. So we miss the point of this passage, and I think I've missed it often enough, if we think it's about general spiritual opposition to ourselves as individuals. No, it's opposition to our collective task of proclaiming Christ by our lips and by our lives, lives lived in unity and diversity and love. And it's only with that context that I think it now makes sense to look at the Uh, the details. And it begins, be strong. You wouldn't all have been here uh, last week. So let me contrast that with the bit that's uh, in uh, chapter 5 and verse 21, submit to one another. And I want you to appreciate the difference. How are we to be with one another? We are to be submissive in a good way. Not be doormats for Jesus, but just to recognize the love that binds us together to work with one another, uh, honoring one another, pushing the other one forward, being glad for the others. We're to submit to one another. And if you find that doing that leaves you going grumbly, saying, oh, I want it to be all powerful and and I want to to be in for a scrap, well, Paul is going to give you a scrap. And the scrap is what we've got tonight. So do you get it? With one another, submissive. But with the heavenly powers, strong. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The scheming is all the ways in which evil presents itself as normality. It's attractive, it's desirable, and entirely legitimate. Let me uh, read to you from Luke's Gospel. Jesus talking about the parable of the sower. The seed, that's the seed sown along the path, is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The work of the devil is to snatch away the word. Jesus in John's Gospel 
describes the devil as the father of lies. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what would be gained enormously by spending a lot of time discussing the devil. Uh, many years ago, a, a friend of mine uh, had to write a book in, this, in, a, in, a, in a series, and it was about the devil. And instead of, and the whole series was called I Believe. I believe in the church, I believe in preaching, I believe in evangelism. We had a problem, because what was he going to call it? Uh, so the book came out as I Believe in Satan's Downfall. And that's the, important thing, that's the important thing that matters. That's what we have to take away, the downfall bit, more than the Satan. But look at verse 12. Our struggles, not against flesh and blood, well, it is actually, but what he means is compared to the struggle against flesh and blood, the deep underlying structure is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Well, who are they? Are they just bad guys in general? Well, they are. But again, if you go back to chapter 3, and verses 10 and 11, we can say that more than anything, what they want is the stopping of the making known of the wisdom of God in Christ. Ephesus was renowned as a place of magic and of dark gods. I have no idea what this is going to do to the timing of the sermon, but I want to tell you a story that I, I heard amongst some students yesterday. Um, uh, a student had been out in uh, South Africa uh, visiting friends on a mission station. And in, on that mission station, there were two boreholes to get their water. But the water was dark and, and muddy and not very pleasant, and they had an uneasy feeling. They did some investigating and discovered that the boreholes had been found by divination in an area that, in which ancestral spirits were honored. And uh, they blocked off the boreholes. And the water engineers nearby said... Uh, that's the most stupid thing you've ever done because you cannot find water. And they said, don't worry, we'll find water. Um, so they prayed and they, nothing happened and they prayed and nothing happened and they prayed and nothing happened. And one day they were praying and they're praying just in a kind of patch of ground. And uh, one of them said, uh, uh, as they stood around, all I can see in my mind's eye is a picture of your feet. And the number 73. Uh, and uh, the, the others in the prayer group uh, acknowledged it, uh, uh, that this was real. And uh, so they decided that they would start digging a borehole uh, where this guy's feet had been at the prayer meeting. And they would dig it 73 meters down, which is a stupid distance uh, to dig a borehole uh, in southern Africa, where the ground is hard. They went through three drills just to get... Uh, down that depth, and the engineers kept saying, look, this is pointless. There is no water down here. We've got no sign of water. Should we just stop and save you more money? They said, no, no, keep drilling. No, we, we, we're not going to stop. If we get to 73 meters and there's no water, we will uh, stop uh, because we don't want to waste any money. So they got to 73, waters, uh, 73 meters, and the story wouldn't be being told. You know that. You've worked that out. Unless at that point there was just a, a, a flourishing uprush of clean, pure water that has kept them going for over 10 years now. And the engineers couldn't even find it. Where are these dark powers? Are they just bad in general? Well, there are stories like that. It's been years now that in the West, 
without that sense of spiritual alertness. We've said, well, it's wherever people feel disempowered. Uh, Nigel prayed for the water companies earlier on. Uh, Lots of people feel completely disempowered by the utility companies. And not very long ago, I read a book or read an article which quite seriously said the utility companies were demonic. Uh, And and, and I understand why. Because what they're saying is, there are these powers in our lives these days which are so big, so global, that we have no power ourselves over them. And we feel uh, 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 just under the cosh of those powers. And it covers anything from water companies to the European Union, whatever it may be, your, your demonic power of choice. But there is something that if we recognize that God the Holy Spirit is behind all good, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that actually there is another power behind all that is evil and disempowering. Just like you get the full power of God for in chapter 1, where... Uh, we are promised, uh, we discover the prayer of Paul that uh, we may know Christ's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. Just like you get the full power there in chapter 1, you need, in this uh, chapter now, the full armor of God. Faced with opposition to the gospel... And the day of evil, see it there in verse 13, so that when the day of evil comes, the day of evil had happened to Paul, he was in prison expecting to die. You will, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Uh, There's a pun there, uh, it means uh, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to withstand anything thrown against you, but to be left standing uh, at the very end of everything. It's not just human effort. This is going to need the full armor of God, and all the resources are available. Again, if you want to find them, go back to chapter 1. But I do want to head briefly into these um, bits and pieces of armor. Uh, He has mined Isaiah to find these. Again, it's not random. And as we go through, we'll find the theme comes through again and again to tell us what it's all going on, what, what all is going on. Firstly then, verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist. It comes from uh, Isaiah uh, uh, chapter 11 to tell us that it is the belt of the Messiah himself. We are to give the devil no advantage, but to use the truth of God's righteous character to stand against anything, all the lies that Jesus says come from demonic activity. The next one, breastplate of righteousness. Again in verse 14. Yahweh, God, puts this on in Isaiah 59. And what it is, righteousness for us, we've got to be careful, it's, a, it's an abstract moral quality, but not in the, the Old Testament. It's a moral quality that's rooted in God being faithful to what he's always said he would do. A good God will always be good. That's the righteousness. It's not just the abstraction of goodness. It's being good again and again and again and again. 
being faithfully good. It is his righteousness is God's faithfulness to his covenant promise to save. So the breastplate of righteousness is a confidence in God as faithful to the God he's always said he will be. Then we get to the uh, footwear. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are uh, him who brings good news. Uh, Sorry, how lovely are the feet of him who brings good news. The good news in that context in Isaiah is the good news coming over the mountain from a a victory, a battle that's been won on the far side of it, out comes the messenger to say, your God has won the victory. There is now peace, the peace of a battle that's been won. It is the message that God has saved his people, and in turn that creates a readiness to share it, because it's so good, a readiness that belongs with the gospel of peace. It's very unfortunate, I feel, that so many Christmas cards have got a slightly wet image and the word peace written across it. According to Ephesians, peace is established on the cross of Jesus Christ where humanity and God are reconciled at last. And there is no other peace than that. The the situation in Bethlehem is not yet peaceful, but it is on its way. It is the peace that comes because God has won the battle. The shield of faith, Isaiah 31, this one. It's, a, it's the huge shield. The Romans had uh, uh, two kinds of shield. They had uh, little shields, um, uh, I suppose, for kind of Monday to Saturday, and great big shields for Sunday. It is the Lord's shield. And it is, it, what it is is his not, not fearing, not being afraid in the face of enemy attack. Uh, when Isaiah is speaking about this, uh, there is that sense that everything that's coming against him, the Lord's shield is able to ward off. The helmet that is salvation. When it says the helmet of salvation, it doesn't mean the salvation gives you a helmet. It means that it is the helmet that is salvation itself. The salvation already won at that cross as peace is brought. And the enemies don't have one of those. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You've heard that. It's a different word. Not the Word meaning uh, the, uh, the written, the kind of thinking Word. The actual uh, phrase that's used here is the spoken out Word, the announced Word. It's Isaiah 11 again. The Spirit rests on the Messiah to announce peace. Let me run through those again, because they're all saying very much the same thing. And we we don't do a great service if we try and say, oh, um, I know I've got the helmet of salvation on today, but I've forgotten the sword of the Spirit. The belt of truth is God's faithfulness. The breastplate of righteousness is is a confidence in his faithfulness. There's the footwear that is about the peace he has established which stands because of the shield of faith and resists enemy attack. The helmet of salvation is what Christ has already done. And we announce it out to the world. All pulled from Isaiah. But all saying much the same thing. These bits of armor matter 
not just, and perhaps we should say not chiefly, when you're just going about the things that you do in the day. They're about our task collectively as God's people to announce what God has done uh, to all the powers of the heavens, to live it out so that they feel threatened and disheartened. Verse 13. Uh, Notice, uh, do I mean 13? No, I don't think I mean 13. I meant uh, 18. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Notice that prayer is not part of the armor. And the question we've got to ask ourselves, surely, is would the devil be afraid of your praying? I'm not sure he'd be afraid of mine. Praying is not a weapon, but it is the way to take all weapons together. And, having done that, to stand. Verse 14. Because I, I, I said at the front, I don't know what happened when Nigel said, as I imagine you did, Nigel, let us pray, or someone will have said it at some point, But you'd have been an unusual church congregation if most of you didn't remain seated and some of you go into the holy crouch. Do you know what I mean? Sort of shampoo position? Um, And Sorry, sorry. Um, And it's left me thinking, you know what I think I'm going to do? In my prayers during Advent, which is coming up from next Sunday, I think I'm going to stand to pray. And I'm going to see if it just feels different to stand for a month to pray. Don't worry, I won't embarrass you. I won't do it here. Um, But I I wonder what it feels like. Because it seems to me that the crouch is a defensive posture. And what Paul is asking of us here is an offensive posture, an aggressive posture. Posture. We are to pray as those who are looking forward with hope to being, uh, we are those who are awake and alert, verse 18, for what is on the way. Everyone else may be sleepy, stuck in the darkness of the times, but we're to be alert. The authorities are real, though you can't see them. Apparently useless things like prayer are real, though you may not be able to see them. So as we finish, I want to suggest that we take the task that's at the root of this as our task. I I was with some of the um, UEACU yesterday at their um, weekend away, and there was a question panel at the very end of the day, or before supper. And uh, I was interested how... It was a classic set of questions that came forward from the students. And I I certainly am not in any uh, position to to complain. We we did our best with the questions that we got. But what was interesting to me was how many of the questions described a, a way of thinking. I can only put it like this. Here's me. God hears me. Okay? Oh, my friend might ask me a difficult question about the Christian faith. What should I say? There was an understandable and a common defensiveness about our task. I've felt it. Uh, We've all felt it. 
What there wasn't was a sense of a whole life aggressive activity. Here is me, and right now, here is me wanting to communicate the gospel. Social relationships are there in Ephesians. Work relationships, family relationships, racial relationships. Relationship with God in prayer and diversely as Father, Son, and Spirit. Relationship with the church, gloriously unified, powerfully different. Nothing remains untouched. So, to get into this, I don't think we can just pick bits randomly out of it. I want to ask, because it does fit in the context of Ephesians, and we'll, we'll finish off things off next week, but I want to ask what it would be like for you to live in Ephesians for a month. What would it be for you to be strong? I don't know what that would like. I can't tell you. Uh, so, uh, I, I, earlier on, someone upstairs prayed that we'd be practical. I can't be practical tonight because I don't know what it would look like for you to be strong. Of course we feel the, the weakness of life's circumstances, but so did Paul. He was in prison when he said to everyone, be strong. What would it look like for you to be so living out the task that Ephesians lays upon us that for a month you knew what it was to be strong? And that, I suggest, is the prayer, the practical prayer, that we make this week as we come ready for next week and finishing off with a, a, a clear look at how we pull this whole thing together, the life that Paul has described in Ephesians. Let's pray together now. Lord God, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for the uh, power that flows through your word. Lord, I'm all too conscious at the end of uh, this that... uh, human words can only do so much to describe the the might and authority of heavenly realms. But just as we know your holiness and goodness lies behind all that we know of goodness, so we know that there is a darker power at work behind all that we know of feebleness and hatred and the harm that so many of us are aware of one way and another. Give us confidence in the task and in the adequacy of the armor with which you provided us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? To crown all things there must be love, to bind all together and complete the whole. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. The peace of the Lord be always with you.